and welcome to the AB Forums podcast for Wednesday the 27th of May 2015, in case you'd forgotten the year. And joining me is assistant editor Steve Withers. Barbara, take off your pantyhose, damn it. And audio reviewer Ed Selly. You know, if it wasn't 7.30 in the morning, I would have a drink. Uh, how true that is, Ed. I know, I, I, I saw that and thought of me. <laughs> However, at one thirty-five in the afternoon, you're seriously thinking about it. Uh, were it not for the fact I have to collect my son from nursery, and it's really? really frowned upon to turn up reeking of beer, yeah, I'd, I'd be on it. So um, it's a nice sunny day. Yeah, well, I was just going to say the sun is out, and um, we've just come back from a, a bank holiday uh, weekend, uh, which probably and uh, it's half term, which obviously that explains why Hodge isn't here. Um, Although I'm dubious, wondering why Botwright's not around. <laughs> Well, he says he's got people coming over. It all sounds a bit sounds a bit mafiosi, doesn't he? They're going to yeah, make him an offer it. he can't refuse. Going to have one of them killed, or are um, they all just sitting there playing playing Mario Kart? I don't know. They're all possibilities. It, it is a killer sitting um, in, in in a house, looking out the window, and it's a beautiful sunny day outside. And we've got to sit and record a podcast. Um, and I don't have anywhere outside to go and sit. At least you know, Steve, you've got a nice out, outdoor area, and Ed, you live in Milton Keynes, so there's plenty of space there. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it, it always feels like it's only half full. So yes, it, it must be said at the very least, county blessings. We are not well. I mean, I'm I'm self-employed. You're uh, directly employed, but you're working from home, so to speak. At the very least, I can pop outside. You know, if I can find in such a way that I don't have unbelievable glare on my screen, I can just sit at the little table in the garden and, you know. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. I don't have a garden. I don't have any outdoor space. I'd have to sit in the street. I'd have to take the sofa (laughs) outside and sit in the street. That's a different look. Do you have any baseball caps with farm machinery on? No, I think we've done the whole redneck thing before. Talking about redneck things, barbecue season's here, Ed, and I know you're a big barbecue fan. Are you building a new one? Well, no, I, I, um, I have to say, in the entire time I have been looking at people sort of building their own fixed install barbecues, I've only seen, I've seen dozens of people do it. I've only seen one or two which actually burn and work better than a self-contained by-your-own-barbecue. So I, I've got barbecue I was discussing just before the po- podcast started. As we speak, I have a barbecue on the go. It's, uh, it's doing a, a pork shoulder at a bacon joint at low temperature, so it can just be left to tick over whilst I witter inanities for this. Um, and it, that's just a, a, it's a, it's actually an online bought barbecue. The, uh, the, my local garden centre didn't have a big enough one. <laughs> but, um, yeah. It just, how, how do you barbecue online? Oh, pedant. The barbecue was purchased from a fine store. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I, it, it's it's fantastic. I, it, it really, honest to God, is only marginally more difficult than using an, using an oven. It's so temperature solid. Uh, just get it up and running. Sits there at a solid 115, 120 degrees for is it, is hours and hours and hours. barbecue? No, it's cold. Cold. Right. But it's just really well designed. So... You just moderate the temperature very gently by opening and closing various vents. Just get it sensible and it just off it goes. It's great. Yeah, yeah, Steve, we're all north of you, so everything still runs on coal up here. (laughs) I've got charcoal barbecue, a Weber, in fact. Well, let's Um, say I I have, this, this, what's running at the moment is a Weber. One one of two Webers I own, um, because I've got a slow one and a fast one. I thought you were going for the stereo thing. Well, I feel naturally happier that way. But yeah, it's um, as I say. One again, you know, as as I work from home, you know, let's start that as a sentence. If you um, you know, if you're only able to sort of cook things that take eight hours at a weekend, it becomes a bit of a pain in the ass. Whereas, as I say, I just put that on. I've been working up until quite. I then had to take my son to nursery, and you know, I'll take food off at seven, where it'll sit for an hour. And yeah, I you know it's been no, no real difference to my day at all. Yeah, it's, it's end, ideal. end of the month, so you'll you'll be loads of work to do, Ed. There is loads to be done. Yes, <laughs> uh, I make no bones about that. Very busy, especially as one of my review products has yet to arrive. So we are Ooh, now you are kind of fine, <laughs> painfully fine, I'm afraid. Yes, um, they're citing logistic issues again. <laughs> Bless them. Of course, regular listeners will know that Ed actually uh, uses the barbecue for Christmas dinner, don't you? Actually, well, that's my father who got into the habit of doing that. And I generally, um, I, thus far, I'm sufficiently young with sufficiently larger number of surviving parents and in-laws that I've, I, do you know what? I, whilst I have cooked a Christmas dinner at somebody else's house, I've never actually cooked one here in 13 years. But yes, my, my parents barbecue their turkey because it keeps 
an enormous oven blocking monster <laughs> out out of the kitchen and that's not me i'm referring to just so we're clear on this we're talking about the turkey um and it all of a sudden preparing christmas dinner becomes an altogether more relaxed experience because you've got a, a complete oven unmolested by you know an enormous bloody turkey sat in the middle of it it's much more relaxed and and it's a big drum barbecue is absolutely great for cooking a turkey it, it, it can run at sufficient temperatures that you can get it done without sort of drying it out to a sort of powdery mess well you know seemingly it's a thing this barbecue new turkey because i thought it was an unusual story when i when i've retold it people say oh yeah we've done that as well yeah i mean don't get me wrong there are uh, chris christmas days in hampshire it's not normally snowy and crisp. More often than not, it's just really drizzly. <laughs> it's it's not the most. It can uh, you know it can be a little depressing to, to sort of trudge up to, to the top of the garden in, in in that sort of weather to check it. But it it, it tastes great and it, it's just very very good for just keeping things um keep, keeping the kitchen nice and relaxed. Okay, well that's filled in seven minutes of time. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Only 53 to go. Uh, right, so let's move on and do some podcasting. Let's look at current competitions, which are, Steve? We've got 55 Days at Peking on Blu-ray. Uh, that one ends on the 1st of June, so if you want to enter for that, you have to be quick. got a few more days to go. Um, we've got the Dirty Harry Blu-ray collections. That's all five Dirty Harry films. That's Dirty Harry, uh, Magnum Force, The Enforcer. Sudden Impact and Deadpool, and that competition ends on the 5th of June. And a new competition, uh, you can win The Dark Crystal on Blu-ray. Um, that runs until the 16th of June. Dark Crystal, of course, Jim Henson's, um, well, I was a Muppet movie, but it, it, I mean, obviously it's not Muppets, it's, uh, it's puppets. Uh, puppets. But um, yeah, it was uh, done by the team behind the Muppets, and um, uh, it was, a you know, a, I wouldn't say live action, because it's not, <laughs> not, there's no actual living people in it, but... Uh, but, you know, it was a full feature film they did, I think, co-produced or certainly partly produced by George Lucas, who helped them out. Um, mm. I guess because the relationship with Frank Oz uh, doing um, Yoda. the voice of Yoda, yeah. So uh, did wasn't a big hit when it came out. I, I think it's gained uh, respect over the years, uh, certainly as a, as a noble effort. But uh, anyway, that's available as a competition prize on Blu-ray. I'd, I've got to say... Um one I remember fondly from my childhood, that one, Dark Crystal. Although I haven't probably I haven't seen it in about twenty years. So was that eighty two? I think was it? Yeah, around right. about then. Yeah, it was Empire Strikes Time or Return of the Jedi. Stop, it was one yeah. of the other. Between the two, right, I think. Around about there, yeah. I haven't seen it in about twenty years, though, so maybe it hasn't aged well. I don't know. I haven't seen it for a long time, and I can't win it either. I'm not allowed to enter. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let's do some hardware. We'll start with audio. Uh, we'll start with uh, Sunfire, who we haven't heard from in quite some time in the UK, but they are back with the XT-EQ12. Uh, so I'm assuming, Steve, that this is a 12-inch subwoofer with built-in EQ. You'd be absolutely correct, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I think this is a bit of a coup for us, because I'm not sure that Sunfire have been regularly reviewed uh, recently. Um, so I think this might be a bit of an exclusive on our part. Um, this is their new XT-EQ range. So there's uh, an 8-inch, 10-inch, uh, and a 12-inch version. This is the 12-inch version. Um, I don't know. Oh, well, I didn't. I do know what they make it out of because I had a look inside. Or rather, I should stress, I didn't open it up. The guy who brought it over opened it up to show me inside because I commented on how incredibly heavy it was, and there is a seriously big magnet inside this. Um, it actually clocks in at twenty six point eight kilograms, uh, and it's only uh, what was it thirteen and a half inches by fourteen inches by thirteen inches. So basically, it's like a little, little, um, little cube, just a bit bigger than the driver itself, but it weighs a ton. It's a nice high gloss black finish. Uh, and as you said, Phil, it comes with auto EQ. Um, so it comes with a microphone and a little stand. Um, you can do it manually as well. You've got options here. Um, you plug it. If you want to do it, use the auto EQ, you just plug in the microphone, put the microphone in the listening position, point it roughly in the direction of the screen. And then uh, you run it and it basically runs itself. It takes a few seconds and it's done. Uh, if you've got two, and he did bring over two, so there's two currently in, in the home cinema being run, you connect, you connect the second one to the first one via the slave inputs and outputs, and then it runs the EQ for both, and obviously does the um, the phase as well. So that worked extremely well. Uh, and then once you've done that, then of course you can run the EQ on your, um, your on your receiver as well. Or you can do it manually, which involves there's a little button you press and you basically hold it down, then it runs through various test tones and you can adjust the level for each one individually to get them sounding just how you want them. Uh, I've got to say, uh, so far, I'm really impressed. I mean, these things have got three kilowatts of power inside them, uh, and you don't half know it. Um, they're uh, a dual firing, so they've got firing in two directions. Um, one side is the active 12-inch drive, and the other side is the passive radiator. Whilst they are 
really powerful considering their size. They're also beautifully controlled and tight. And, and uh, I've, I've been really impressed. Having two of them at the front, I've got to say, is a definite improvement in terms of evening out the, the base of my room. It was a good thing. Um, but they, they worked in unison together really well. And uh, they, I mean, I watched, I watched American Sniper at the weekend, which is Dolby Atmos soundtrack. And um, I thought they they absolutely brilliant. They they really did absolutely nail the, the so this the scenes when like tanks rumble by, but also a lot of the gunfire is using um, silencers, so it's a suppressed sound, but there's still a punch to it. There's still a kick to these shots. Uh, it's a beautiful uh, soundtrack, I've got to say. Really, really immersive and really, really well designed. There's a big um, uh, sandstorm towards the end, and then the last big firefight, uh, and when that engulfed the entire room um, and the subs came in as well it was just you felt like you were in the middle of a sandstorm it was really enveloping and, and immersive and and i've got to say i thought the uh, the sunfires did a fantastic job on that i haven't had much chance to listen to the music yet but certainly as far as using them with movies absolutely stellar um, what's the um asking price the 1800 pounds right okay for so the 12 inch version so not uh not crazy money uh no. obviously not cheap let's be honest about this that's not cheap but uh for what you're getting that's uh, that's a pretty good price for for what is a genuinely you know higher end really effective subwoofer. Are these yeah. uh, sealed enclosures. Yes, yes, they are both. It's a sealed sealed. Um, can I also ask the last Sunfire that I had anything to do with? And now I have to stress, we're talking fifteen years ago. It was also tremendously powerful and compact, and it was great up until the point where if you were listening to music and it had a routine beat, it would make a bid for freedom and start to <clears> move around. Have they managed to stop that? I haven't been. A, what do you mean, move around? It, well, <laughs> like you mean physically move around? Yes, physically move around. You know, no, like uh, the dancing oh. toaster in, Go, in <laughs> Ghostbusters Two. I'm not joking. It would sort of bump, 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 and start moving, moving about. Well, I have not been aware of them moving around. I have to say, they seem to be in the same place where I put them. You go back in the cinema room and they're um, gone. Yeah, yeah, they made a bid, a bid for freedom. They're running down the road. Um, no, um, well, funny enough. The guy who delivered them, Tom Garrick, he actually brought a, a CD with him, uh, a Bjork CD. I don't know if you're familiar with this CD, Ed. It's, uh, well, I think, a recent album. One of the tracks yeah. on it is called Bastards. Uh, and it's got some seriously, seriously low-end, low-frequency effects at the beginning of the song and, and throughout the most of it. Uh, and when that came in, the whole room was shaking and, and rumbling. And, and it was, yeah, I mean, not often you hear that. Those kind of, you kind of get them in movies a lot, but not in music. And this was quite quite threatening. But given that, that was serious low end action. Um, they remain seem suitably stable and in the same place. <laughs> there is a heat sink underneath. So uh, probably best not to put them on really thick shag pile carpets. Um, but uh, other than that. Not in your porn dungeon, for example. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. Right, so obviously you're using these with your uh, resident speakers, which I believe are four standards. So how are you crossing them over? I'm, I was crossing them over at, um, I was using them, well, for movies at the crossover, I'm using it for uh, fees 80 hertz. And for these floor stands, I'm crossing over at 60. Because they're, they're, they're pretty big floor standards and they can go quite low. So I've, I've chosen 60 as a suit. seems to work quite well. Um, and you're using a 2.1 configuration for music listening. Good stuff. Uh, it's amazing what you can get out of 10 and 12 inch subwoofers when oh, they are properly de properly designed, proper sealed cabinets, good power behind them. And I, I'm assuming that it's got a, a massive f off magnet at the back of it to uh, make sure that yeah, yeah, it's, the driver it's moves. It's weighs 26 kilos. It's this is massive, massive. If you look inside it, almost the entire enclosure is largely the magnet. And then obviously the, 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 there's the cone and stuff, but it's mostly magnet inside, which is why it's so incredibly heavy and it's huge. I mean, well, it, it, if you think about it, it's 13 inches by 13 inches by 13 inches. There's two 12-inch you know, um, cones on either side, and then in the middle, a gigantic magnet. That's pretty much it. And then on the amplification. I've got to say, I've always found small sealed subs like that, and I've, I had recently the, the V12 from uh, M&K, in the room, and I've I've now got the bigger brother of that in the room, the X12, which is uh, dual 12 12 inch drivers, but it's a ported design. Well, obviously yeah. it's a, sl a a slot port at the bottom of that subwoofer, and that's been harder to fit in the room and get it sounding good than the two cheaper sealed units, um, because they just integrated so well with the with the main speakers. Whereas the X12s have taken a little bit of work to to get them running at their absolute best. So a lot to be said for smaller sealed. I totally agree. I, I've currently got uh, an SVS, that was it, the PB1000, so that's a ported, big ported sub. 
And uh, I've got to say, I'm seriously thinking about moving to some seal ones, a couple of seal ones at the front, because I just think it sounded much, much better. I mean, obviously, you can't compare the subwoofer to these subwoofers in terms of their performance, but I just think the idea of having two smaller sealed subs at the front, I get a much more even distribution of bass in the room. And I really like the way they responded. Um, and, yeah. and as you say, the way that they, they integrated with these floor standards, lovely. I just and, and you know, you guys always laugh when I say I have four subwoofers running normally in my room, but that is the whole reason why I have four mm -hmm. subs running no, in my no, room. It keeps it nice and even, um, you know, gets rid of most of the problems within the room and gives you a really nice base that, that's not overly, uh, I was going to say flatulent. <laughs> <laughs> Flatulence can be a problem with very low level play frequencies. Apparently, did you, was it the story that... You sent me last week. Yeah, well, Snoop's kind of put paid to that one because it's it's one of these old theories that goes around that if you if you hit a certain frequency, you can make people shit their brakes basically. Is it actually true? Was no, no. It, te technically, it, it it theoretically it should work, but nobody's but it been needs able to, be to do done it. At a level that is simply beyond not only any domestic they, they, they did it on almost um, any other piece of they, they did it on Mythbusters or oh, probably about five years ago now it was probably the first series <laughs> of Mythbusters but what they did was they got huge PA bass speakers and surrounded the guy with them and then they they had a, a modulator a frequency modulator which they could change the frequency that was I mean we're going like subsonic where you you can't hear anything yeah, but you could see the drivers moving and and obviously feel the air being moved, and they tried every single frequency on this guy and they couldn't make him have diarrhea. <laughs> so, but anyway, moving on from diarrhea to <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're not saying that's anything to do with Sunfire whatsoever. So these are, are cracking little subs, and we expect a review when Steve. That'll be this week, end of this week. <laughs> You're big for making promises, you know. No, no, I mean, uh, well, there won't be a video attached to it this time, but uh, there'll definitely be a written review by the end of the week. Um, right, so wrapping up on um, some of the hardware stuff. So I've looked at the, the first Panasonic TV that we've seen this year, and talking about exclusives, I haven't noticed it reviewed anywhere else. And so I think we were first to get our hands on uh, the CX700. Under £1,000, it's a 4K 50-inch TV. It has a direct backlight with local dimming. Only eight zones of local dimming, but... It has local dimming, uh, VA panel, Steve, and um, gotta say, black levels were very good. View oh, angles. Press with your measurements. Did you just, 0 0.02, you said, didn't you? On, uh, on, uh, 0 0.02, yeah. 0 0.002, um, yeah, which is, um, that's that's native black without the backlight um, local dimming on, yeah? 0% on a window. Okay. So, that's yeah, good. No, really good. But the, the most impressive thing was I put the, uh, the checker pattern up. And it measured exactly the same in the black square. So oh, that's that's a massive improvement on last year then when they were using IPS panels. Yeah. Um, there are some issues. If you are using it in a pitch black room, and we would never recommend using an LCD TV of any description in a pitch black room, uh, you will see halo in effects. You will notice certain areas of the panel light up to, you know, if you had the channel indicator like BBC One, uh, you'll notice around a bit that it's lighter than the rest of the screen, quite a bit of halo and stuff. Put the lights on, that kind of disappears. And certainly I got the best performance out of it in the living room with two windows wide open on a sunny day and the backlight turned up to about 20 rather than 8 for the dark room. And um, got to say, nice punchy images, good black levels, a uh, fair degree of shadow detail. Uh, but in terms of a, a living room workhorse, I thought it was really, really nice. And colours, pretty good as well. So I, I found it difficult to have a bad word to say about it other than it's an LCD TV. And every LCD TV is going to have its inherent flaws. And if you push it too hard, you push the panel too hard, or you put it in the, the wrong environment with the wrong settings, you're going to notice all the, the technical drawbacks. But set up correctly in, in a living room, uh, did an excellent job. And How did it handle um, 4K content? Right, 4K content. I plugged GH4N, it worked fine plugging it into the HDMI. Took the SD card out, put the SD card in the player, and it couldn't recognise the 4K files from the SD card from the camera. The reason is it's uh, 80 megabits per second bandwidth for that player and it needs 100 from the right. SD card. So I could, that was one thing and I thought, well, it's a Panasonic camera. You know, surely it's going to work with a Panasonic 4K. No, you can't watch the native files off, off the SD card through the SD player. You have to connect it up via HDMI and then play the files through the camera for that to work. Um, all the other stuff worked fine unless you use uh, MOVs. <laughs> 
And <laughs> seeing as I uh, have an Apple and I do all my editing on, on the Apple Final Cut Pro, um, it's all MOV. So you got to change that to MP4 before it'll play it back. Right. Um, whereas every other 4K TV I've tried, I say every other, <laughs> the Samsung <laughs> that I had a couple of weeks ago, uh, it played it back fine. And every other TV that I've, I've plugged USBs into and stuff with MOV, played it no problem. I have to say, in the, all the ones I've reviewed to date, and um, well, actually, think about that. Sony, Samsung, and LG, but they both have played them no problem whatsoever. The ones that you've given me for, for testing purposes. So yeah, but then again, you know, we're talking about a 4K Ultra HD TV with a direct LED backlight, local dimming, under a grand. What was the screen size? Fifty inches. It's not bad, is it? <laughs> well, I mean, you can always argue that you can debate the merits of 4K on a 50-inch screen to, until the cows come home, but that's a really good price for a. 50-inch Ultra HD 4K TV, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And I've got to say, I mean, I looked at the the footage that I shot in Canada and that kind of thing on it, where it is like native 4K um, and not streamed 4K, which it will do. It'll stream Amazon 4K watch, and Netflix um, 4K. some stuff on that? Uh, yeah, watch bits and pieces on that. Um, you know, I'm really going to have to sit down and watch Breaking Bad other than just going <laughs> through and, look, and looking at a few clips. <laughs> um you know, it's like one of those films that you've never actually seen, but you play all the demo scenes off, yeah. or, or you, you've gone to a hi-fi show and you see all the demo scenes, but you've never actually seen the full movie. Um, it's kind of getting like that a bit. But um, yeah, I, I, I couldn't find any major, for the money, screen size, build quality, and the build quality was far better than the Samsung uh, JU6400. You know, there's a mix of metal and plastic used. Um, yeah, couldn't find any faults with it whatsoever. Cracking little TV and yeah, Kim recommended, definitely. How was the smart platform? Because is that the reason why it's been a bit delayed in terms of why are we now end of May? Is that is that why they've been so late coming out? Yeah, they, they didn't want to hold it forever because it's not going to be. I think they're projecting July for uh, Freeview Play, um, right. which you know they don't want to hang on and hang on and hang on. So that's why they've launched the TVs now. But every time that they've said that there was going to be an update, um, then it happened when they said it was going to happen. So I, you know, I don't that's think. Good. I, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, it's not just Pan- um, Panasonic in the situation. If you look at all the manufacturers this year, I mean, Samsung uh, launched first, but their platform was in no way ready for uh, me- me- you know for prime time. Um, it's still it's still now there are uh, things being added on and updates and improvements being done to it. Yes. LG's platform again when they launched wasn't really ready. WebOS 2.0, there was stuff that wasn't there. It was um, missing initially. I think they've added them on now, uh, and obviously Sony and Philips are still, you know, a wall to a degree Android. because that's why they're yes, late because of Android TV. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting question, isn't it? Do you just launch the TV and get it in the marketplace and then you know update as and when you can, which is kind of basically what Samsung and LG did, and to a certain extent what Panasonic are doing, or do you wait till it's ready to go but then run the risk of missing, you know, half a year? Of, well, I mean, March to say July, it's four months of potential sales, that, and you're giving yep. the market you know share to one or two other manufacturers. I, I think Panasonic got burnt with that last year with the mm. uh, with the 900. You know, it didn't come out to the end of the year, and by that point, there's no really people buying TVs at that time of the year because you're well, in the run up to Christmas, and you know they'll if they wanted to replace the TV, they're going to do it during the summer of sport or whatever else is happening. You know, that's when the people or People are buying the cheap, you know, the stuff that was launched in March and April and May is now being discounted towards exactly. the end of the year, yeah. ready for the new lineup. And and you're competing, you know, price wise, it is a huge differential. Yeah, I mean, they got must have got murdered by September, October of last year. Yeah. Okay. So um, we're still waiting on more TVs coming, but we've got some big news uh, coming up because there's no podcast next week. We'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but there's also no podcast at the end of June. Because we're, well, I'm going somewhere special and I'm not allowed to say anything about it whatsoever. So let's move on. You tease, Phil, you tease. (laughs) But we do have the Panasonic CX802 coming up very soon. We have been promised that that is coming very soon. So Mark will be reviewing that one. And you've got a couple of LGs, Steve. Yeah, I've I've just, I'm in the middle of finishing off my review of the LG 55 UF950, which is their flagship um, Ultra HD 4K TV. very similar in lots of respects to the Sony, um, the, the really slim Sony. This is a similar kind of design. It's very, very slim, uh, only like half a centimetre, so five millimetres thick um, for about a third of the late way down. Obviously, as you get further down, they have to put things like speakers and you know electronics and inputs and everything somewhere, so it gets de- deeper further down. But it's it's, it's a very thin um, LCD panel that kind of bonded trim around the outside. Um, it looks like they've sort of ported over some of the... Uh, 
things they've learned built, building um, OLED TVs, you know, which again, obviously, they're very thin. Um, they've kind of taken some technology and they've moved it across to create these very thin LCD panels, which means that the backlight obviously is along the bottom. So in general terms, um, a very nice TV, very well, well performed, very well performed TV. But and this, I think, is going to apply to Sony as well. The one problem you have got is clearly the backlights at the bottom. So you're going to get um, what I would call columns of light sometimes with mm. that with um with local dimming the cones uh, of light yeah <laughs> um, i've got well, that one in at the moment and then um in a couple of weeks time i'll be getting a look at their sort of second tier model which is the uh uf850 sony have got a bit of a track record for cones of light haven't they on on their really slim models i'm trying to remember which model that was now a couple of years not the ago. same as a cone of shame though is it <laughs> well it could be <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we're bringing it back to the technical difficulties and the faults with LCD, LED technology, which is always going to be the backlight. It's yeah. always going to be yeah. an issue. No matter how well designed uh, you think a backlight is, you'll always find a drawback with it, whether it's viewing angles, whether it's contrast ratio, whether it's pooling, whether it's bad, really bad uniformity, dirty screen effect. You know, we could really go on and on and on about all the issues that put... So, I guess that the and it's been brought up in the comments as well, Stephen. I think it's a really important point to make that you know if you overdrive a panel, if you set it up even in normal mode, I found on this Panasonic, normal was really really bright. I mean, we're talking over two hundred CDM square. You measured it at what four hundred something? It was four hundred. That was in dynamic. That was in dynamic mode, and that was on uh, an ANSI board, checkerboard. That was the white on an ANSI board. Is your shadow burnt into the wall from where you were taking measurements from? Yeah, the Hiroshima shadow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, not well, quite. I think, I think... Not quite, but overly bright. Really, really bright. And and you know this this is when you start to introduce all the other issues that then go with it. Because if it's a bad source, if the image is too bright, you're really going to push what's wrong with the source, whether it's really bad compression or whether it's yeah, blocking or whatever. Um, if it's uh, a problem with the panel, if you're overdriving the backlight, then you're going to see the zones, you're going to see issues with haloing. It's going to be more prominent, more in your face. Whereas if you set the TV up correctly in the in the correct, like true cinema or cinema mode, and then set the contrast and brightness in the backlight to the room, you're less likely to be seeing any issues that are there in the source material because that's you know nine times out of ten it's in the source material that, that you're going to find the real problems like compression issues and macro blocking and so on um but you will see issues with the backlight and if all you have to do is really set the backlight properly steve or set it in the best way that it mitigates a lot of the issues yeah i mean if you've ever looked at a tv uh, you know, and, and you can look at it with normal content and think, oh, no, that backlight doesn't look too bad. But then you switch to 3D content where obviously the backlight's going to be jacked up to its maximum brightness. Suddenly, a lot of errors that maybe you hadn't noticed before become readily apparent. Um, and that applies, to, as you were saying, Phil, to if you're watching normal content, if you've got the brightness too high, the backlight too high, um, you're going you're gonna to see issues that you may not see if you had a lower setting on the backlight. But by setting it lower, particularly in the evenings, you'll have a more comfortable viewing, um, viewing image. You'll have, a, you know, is it a better experience all round. You'll get better blacks because you've got the backlight lower down. Uh, as you said at the beginning of this conversation, you know, don't watch a TV in a pitch black environment. That probably applies to just about any TV, really. It's just not appropriate. Better to have a little bit of bias lighting in there. Again, it, it makes it more comfortable for viewing and it makes the blacks look a little bit better, um, you know, subjectively. But um, I think this situation is only going to get worse with the whole push to HDR going forward. Because um, one of the things I noticed uh, when I ha I've got a little bit of HDR content and when I played it on the, uh, well, any of the new Samsung TVs, the JS series that actually support HDR currently, it immediately defaults to the 20 setting, the maximum setting on the backlight. Um, and then once you stop watching HDR content, it doesn't go back to being what it was before. It remains at 20. So I think people are going to maybe watch something and then they'll be stuck on with a backlight full up to maximum, which, you know, you really don't want on these really, really bright LCD yeah. televisions. That's just too bright for watching normal content. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's the technical limitations of the technology and it's finding the best way around those limitations to give you the best possible picture. And some manufacturers do a really good job, you know, out of the box in giving. I mean, the Panasonic and the Samsung both out of the box in the cinema and true cinema modes, um, setting the colour temperature to warm and warm too. Um, it gets you so close to where you want yeah. it to be that you don't need to be putting it in any other mode. Um, all you need to do is, is then set the backlight for your room and environment and you're going to get the best of the picture quality um, without you know, really noticing the technical limitations of the technology, which is you know 
it's an LCD TV at the end of the day. There's always going to be issues. Always. I think what we're seeing basically is the, the swan song of LCD technology. I mean, the, thank God. They're, they're squeezing every last possible technological feature out of it now in terms of, you know, if you look at it now with terms of increased brightness and HDR, um, local dimming, really thin panels, whatever whatever it is, it, it's like the, the, this is the swan song in terms of, I don't really see how they can squeeze much more performance out of LCD as technology than they have done this year. There's three um, things for humanity to move on, Steve. <laughs> three things that need to happen. One is do away with all religions. Two is get rid of the LCD TVs. <laughs> and three is to finally get rid of vinyl so we can all bloody well move on. You can fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, that about does it for hardware. But I, I want to bring a question which was raised over the, the bank holiday weekend on the forums to Edward and get his uh, point of view here. Ed, um, the market really moving on in terms of soundbars. There's quite a few soundbar reviews coming up. I'm working on one yeah. myself at the moment. They range in price from about, and we're talking about decent quality here, from about 200 yeah. quid up to about 1,000. There are more expensive examples, but that's generally the range. Certainly the yes. Samsung stuff coming in at the minute and LG stuff around about 600 to 800 pounds. Now, the question that was raised on the forums, I mean, obviously these products are made for a specific type of uh, clientele, but the question that was raised, and it was a fair point, is it six to 800 quid? You could go out and buy a, a pretty darn good AVR and speaker setup for that type of money. That's going to sound a million times better than the soundbar. Fair enough point, isn't it? But how do you then equate that to the type of clientele that's going to go and buy the soundbar? Don't get me wrong. Soundbars have cannibalized a, a very specific subsection of AV receiver sales. Where you essentially, it, I think every Japanese house brand had at least one example of it where you bought, you got the low-end AV receiver and some plastic speakers in one big box, sort of home cinema in a box, uh, and 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 products like that. They've been absorbed by by soundbars, but more, for the most part, I don't think that the the bulk of sales are going to people who would have been buying an AV receiver. They're going to people who had been getting on fine with the speakers in their yeah, television yeah, totally. until really now they're listening to ones and they're just gopping and it's now it's now almost an obligatory thing to have now um, my side of the argument and and you know it was a fair enough point put by one of the forum members but i guess the flip side of this and, and the point i was trying to make in my reply to to the question was that if you get people to move away from tv speakers and put a sound bar into their system a sound bar with a wireless subwoofer even better yeah it gets them used to that level of quality of sound to go with the TV that they're more likely then to look at the next step. A, a small group of people will then move further up further up the, the insanity ladder, yes. Not as many as I think a number of manufacturers believe. Not least because um, it's interesting you're saying they go up to about 1,000 and there are a few more. I mean, obviously, pretty much the only sound projector I've done, sound bar I've done because I'm a nutter is the gigantic Focal one, which is over a £1,000. Yeah. And I've got to be honest, you'd have to spend a significant amount on an AV receiver-based setup for it to be decisively better sonically. Don't get me wrong, AV receivers at lower prices can be more flexible. Um, and definitely offer better connectivity options. But that Focal Dimension was... I've got to be honest, yeah, though, but, if I wasn't still doing a lot of review work, I could probably live with that. Really? And and, yeah. not, have, and not have your left yeah. and right and your surround channels and your sub? Yeah, I, I, I've got to be honest, if... If you know, if it allowed me more space to monkey about with two channel stuff, but that I'm a bit specific in that regard. Uh, I wouldn't want to live. I wouldn't want to rely on it for music. It was good for a soundbar, but it was still a soundbar in that yeah. regard. I think the explosion in the soundbar market really has been as a result of the, what we were talking about a minute ago with LCD TVs becoming thinner and thinner uh, and more design orientated. And obviously the sound quality has suffered as a result and people have realised their TVs were sounding a bit rubbish. And I guess also in stores, salesmen have been pushing the soundbars to go with TV sales as a way of improving that sound quality. But the thing you just mentioned, Ed, which is one thing that has a, I've noticed from reviewing them is the one area where soundbars really are inferior to um to an, some sort of separate solution aside you know obviously it's not genuine surround sound things like that but 
connectivity. You know, you're only getting one or maybe two HDMI inputs on on, yes. on, on a soundbar. Many soundbars, no HDMI inputs at all. Now, you know, I use almost exclusively HDMI these days, and I've got five or six different devices in the lounge. So if I'm testing a soundbar, quite often, it's, you know, you have to pick what you're going to plug into it out of those five or six different things. Whereas if you had a, a receiver, you could probably connect them all to that one receiver. Yeah, but I, um, I, are you using a TV with ARC? Can you not connect uh, My TV it? does not have ARC. Right, okay. Really? So if you did have ARC, what you could do is put most of the sources into the TV. You could do that. Although it's actually, a w- admittedly, at, set, uh, at £500 and above, you're right, Phil, it's commonly fitted. But there are still weird occasions where it's not. It's, it's a very peculiar own goal mm. in that regard. Yeah. I would also say that my Panasonic does have ARC, and it's sufficiently flaky with certain products that I've reviewed that um, I have. Oh, there's always an optical cable poking out the side as well, <laughs> because it, if I consistently rely on ARC, it doesn't want to know, yeah. um, and that's seriously bloody annoying. Yeah, but I mean, it was an interesting point that was raised. Um, it's certainly one where I think, uh, in terms of the AV forums audience, uh, if you're looking at a, a curved Samsung soundbar with a with a subwoofer at seven hundred quid, and you're looking at the AV Forums audience, I think we'd be pushing people on AV Forums to go the separate route. Um, yeah, I think that would, that would always be the advice, unless you're you're going to get murdered by the other half for uh, mm-hmm. for putting all the speakers in the room. But in terms of performance, you're always going to get better. Um, yeah. Yes, absolutely. But by the same token, in terms of sort of secondary TVs, bedroom stuff and things like that, they are absolute no-brainers as well. You know, it's all very well having a, a proper installation in your main room, but if you want telly in the bedroom and you know if you've gone for a uh, say perfectly perfectly capable video uh, image displaying screens but they can still sound like a bag of spanners so that's where you know they are a, a really sensible and normally quite usefully priced bolt-on yep so we've got some more reviews coming up but i, I mean as always if it's performance you want you want uh, surround sound you want proper home theater there are better solutions out there if you on like ed said you want um and it really you gotta look at the industry and think very clever the industry weren't they because they thought well let's make these tvs thinner yeah but the sound crap yeah but we can make more products and sell extra products on top it of wasn't that it's a question of asking of course it's, it's not that they're, they're, they're not the clever enough questions. do you as you say to the public do you want your television to be lighter and thinner they're going to go well of course you want it to be lighter and thinner if you ask them do you want it to be lighter and thinner on the understanding that it won't sound very good. You might have found the public gone, mm, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> it's the same classic example as, say, airline flight tickets. Do you want cheaper flights? Yes. Do you want cheaper flights at the expense of being treated only fractionally better than your hold luggage? Mm, let me think about that. So, <laughs> you know, as I say, Ryanair, they've just announced really big profits this year, having learnt that there are actually limits to human degradation that people won't go past. <laughs> so they've improved their service over the last year. I mean, and it's it, paid off hugely. It's funny you say that but you know you look at the likes of BA and I will always fly BA because you always got track better uh, and and you got in-flight snacks and free drinks and all the rest of it so you, you know once you paid your ticket price you weren't paying anything anything else for hold luggage and all that kind of thing yeah. um, but seemingly that's not what people want people would rather pay for what they're actually going to use and, and not pay for other things um, I think there's the balance to it I think EasyJet got it pretty much bob on I mean EasyJet their model was always to be a cheap airline, but they wouldn't go beyond a certain point in the interest of saving money because they just didn't see the point. Whereas for years and years and years, Ryanair would do anything it took to be the cheapest, even if the result was just heroically pointless. You know, landing at an airport a sort of 45 miles away from where you thought you were going to be. <laughs> yeah, you fly to Rome yeah. and you end up in Paris. Yeah. Well, you fly, no, the classic one was if you flew Ryanair to Venice, you landed at Treviso, which is closer to the border with Yugoslavia than it is Venice. <laughs> and it's a shed in the middle of nowhere. So there we go, we've sorted out uh, new LCD TVs, uh, the, the world to rights. and budget airlines. There you go, you only get that on Navy Forums podcast, no one else, folks. Um, we'll be back in a sec with movie news. Okay, Steve, um, assuming you went to the cinema, so what was there? Well, this week we had Poltergeist, the remake of the 1982 classic, um, which I've got to say uh, was interesting in two respects. One, 
uh, it kind of it highlighted the utter lack of imagination currently residing in Hollywood, where they seem to be just remaking uh, anything they can get their grabby little paws on. Uh, I've noticed just in the last couple of weeks they've announced potential remakes for Don't Look Now. It's like, please, please don't do that. It was a fantastic film. First time around, you can't top it. Why would you want to remake it? Um, and, you know, numerous other remakes have been bandied about. It's just getting ridiculous. If it's not a remake and it's some sort of existing property or it's a, or it's a sequel or it's a prequel or it's something, but it's just nothing original. Although I'm going to come back to originality in a minute. So Poltergeist, the remake, pretty much follows the same plot as the original film. But what it does do, and this again is something else that occurred to me about modern films. You know, if you watch the original film, and I have seen it quite recently, it builds. It builds slowly. It takes its time. You know, there's a gradual sense, you know, initially there's some strange events happening, but they could be explained another way. But gradually becomes more and more supernatural. Uh, but with a sort of almost initially a sense of excitement, you know, it's like, oh, this is interesting and, and fun. And then obviously it turns nasty. Um, whereas in, in the remake, it's just almost immediately bang into the supernatural and, and the crash bang wallop with no build at all. So there's none of that sense of, you know, it's like they expect, they think modern audiences haven't got the attention, maybe they haven't got the attention span to wait half an hour before the action kicks off to build up character and get to know the family and then how things start to happen to them. In this, you know, it's, they, they basically, it's, it's a similar, uh, concept you know it's a family a mother and a father uh, an elder daughter a son and a young daughter although unlike the original film where they've been living in the house for years and then they're established there in this they've just bought the house their father's lost his job and they've moved bought a house which they've got cheap and obviously the reason they've got it cheap is because it's haunted and as soon as they move in stuff starts to happen and so there's no real time to get to know the family at all before things start happening to them, which I think minimizes the impact. Uh, you like the family in the original film and therefore feel, you know, more involved emotionally with what's happening to them um, because of that. Uh, in this case, there isn't. And then there's obviously other little changes too. They have to address things like modern technology. You can't make a film now without addressing things like mobile phones and there's even drones in it for that reason. In the original film, it's the mother that goes into the vortex to rescue her daughter, whereas in this case, it's the son, um, which I think it was a mistake too, because I think that mother-daughter bond was an important part of the original film. Effects-wise, obviously, it's you know the effects are. Although I thought the effects were very good for 1982 uh, in the original film, uh, obviously clearly they're better these days. Just you know, just CGI effects are, are, are look a lot better than what would have been old original model work. Although I still think there's a charm to it that makes that much more beautiful looking than 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 in some of the uh, stuff in the new film. But um, Sharina reviewed it for us, and I, and I totally agree with her. I think her score was a bit harsh. She only gave it four out of ten, which is a little bit steep. I would have said maybe five. But um, you know, at the end of the day, you're left with that kind of sensation of what was the point? There's obviously a generational thing here as well, because it's, what, 30 years, which is normally considered a generation, isn't it? So yeah. there is that as well. The, the, the other, I mean, my theory here is, Stephen, and bear with me on this one, but you know, with Spielberg produced or or directed movies when you look at the family there was always one thing that, that that was always consistent with the families and how you got to know the family and that was they all had golden retrievers <laughs> it was that there was definitely a yeah that's true and and if you've seen poltergeist by the way i mean it was produced and written uh, and conceived by steven spielberg but technically directed by toby hooper and there's a big con controversy that's been going on for the last 33 years about who actually directed poltergeist and because obviously Toby Hooper is famous for directing Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, and if you watch Poltergeist, it doesn't look anything like that. It looks an awful lot like a Spielberg film. There's, whole, as you said, the whole family dynamic, the suburbia setting. I mean, obviously he wrote, wrote it, so that's going to be there. But uh, a lot of the shots in it, a lot of the direction really feels like Spielberg to me and not Toby Hooper. And apparently what happened was he was uh, he was also he was directing ET at the time. And you, under DJ rules, you can't be directing two films simultaneously. So he couldn't he couldn't direct Poltergeist. So he's producer, um, um, but I think he was a very hands-on producer in the same way I think with the original film version of The Thing, Christian Nyby directed it, but Howard Hawks was the producer and Howard Hawks was on set a lot uh, and his fingerprints all over. And in the case of Spielberg, his hands, his fingerprints are literally on it because there's, you know, the scene of a podcast where the guy's looking in the mirror and his face starts to fall apart. Yeah. Um, those hands that are pulling at the flesh are Spielberg's hands. That's how hands-on he was. Um, and it does a lot of the time feel and look like a Spielberg film. I've seen a really great photograph. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a photograph of Spielberg walking down the street um, with the kids from Poltergeist and the kids from E.T. all because it was being shot at the same time on the set. So he had he walking down the street with all, all of them. The two films do feel like they're, they're two sides of the same coin. Well, there's One the, is there. There's, there's the, the whole Halloween scene in E.T. is on that housing estate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like the two films are mirror images. One, one's, one's about a sort of a friendly invasion, if you like, by an alien entity, and one is a, 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 a not so friendly invasion by an alien entity into the family not dynamic. Not so friendly. <laughs> yeah, 
a minor inconvenience. Anyway, uh, so yeah, it's essentially the same story, and and there are key element, key scenes are, are, are there again, and it's just, it seems to be the same thing, but just truncated, and the pace has been picked up. Picked but you up. see, the the thing that I've just picked up straight there, Steve, is that we've got fond memories of the original. Mm, you know, we're sitting talking about what we remember of the original. What is this film saying to us? It's it's not saying anything to me. It's making me feel old. <laughs> That's <what> it's mostly doing. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess you, that's what I'm saying about who's the audience for it. Is it for people, is it for a younger generation who haven't seen Poltergeist and therefore, you know, would they be particularly interested in it in the first place? Or is it for the generation that do not fondly remember Poltergeist, in which case we've already got the film we fondly remember, do we want to see a remake of it in the first place? It, it's almost uh, like it's almost like the set having the sandwiches at a, a lunchtime in Hollywood, you know, you know how they do. This is how I see things in my head. And they say, well, we've got all this CGI, what can we do now? Oh, let's make, oh, wouldn't that film be really... Mm. You know, super, super cool if we did Poltergeist. You know, look at the special effects we've got now. Look what we could do with it. And do you think there's a bit of that going on? Yeah, I think there's a lot of that going on. I think generally they look around at their back catalogue and think, oh, that might, you know, I guess this is what's, this is almost certainly exactly what did happen, Phil. They looked at last year's box office successes and there was a lot of horror films out. You know, a lot of those kind of scary uh, ghost stories like The Conjuring, um, Insidious, Chapter 2, um, Sinister, um you know, lots of haunted house, poltergeisty, scary movies. A lot of films that, you know, probably do, have, you know, in some respects, owe their existence to films like Poltergeist, the original version. And they thought, well, we've got property that's ready to go. We could just remake this. Better special effects, bang, you know, ghost story, bumps in the night, etc. There's a, obviously a market for it. Let's do it. That's almost certainly their thought processes but um yeah personally i would rather just watch the original film i think i just what i what i find depressing was so much it wasn't so much that it was remade because lots of them I mean, there have been really good remakes i mentioned the thing a minute ago john carpenter's version of the thing is one of the great examples of a really 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 good remake that's first of all not much like the original film if you're going to do remake do it completely differently i think it seems to be the obvious solution because the thing is nothing like the thing from another planet uh, or thing from another world that came out in the 50s is, is actually based more upon the original short story and, and uh, is more effective because of it. What worried me, what compressed me was it just this kind of idea that there's no attempt at all to build characterization or story um, or to take your time. If you, look, if you watch Alien, for example, how long is it before anything happens in Alien? Good, you're good half an hour into that film, aren't you? You're going to be longer before we even start to yeah, well, see it's, something. Well, it's like, it uh, how, how long does it take for Bruce the Shark to turn up in Jaws? Yeah, or if you watch Aliens. It's nearly an, in the director's cut of Aliens. It's almost an hour before the first alien even appears in Aliens. But, you know, you want that time. You want to get to know those characters. You want to build up. It's like a road. Cameron describes a rollercoaster. You're going up and up and up and up, and you get to the top and then you're off. And there's a sense that, you know, modern films don't seem to have, to trust their audience to have the patience to let them do that, which is a real shame. Unless it's obviously a Peter Jackson. <laughs> yeah, when there's two, four hours of build and uh, no, no, no payoff. <laughs> no payoff. <laughs> Uh, right, so um, talking about you know absolutely classic movie and filmmaking, uh, San Andreas is out there on Friday. Ah, oh, come on, The Rock. I mean, the San Andreas fault. I mean, it's called San Andreas. So I don't think I'm giving any way to suggest that the San Andreas fault's going to split and there's going to be a big earthquake or a series of earthquakes, disastrous earthquakes in uh, in, in in California. But you see, the first thing I, I I thought of when I was looking at the trailer, right, apart from the rock being in it, obviously, which you know is a given. Well, he's going to flex that, his muscle, yeah. boiled muscles. But, and the, but the other thing was give it. the other thing was that 2012 has already done all this. There was a lot of shots when he's flying the helicopter through the collapsing buildings. It's very similar, isn't it, to the bit with the plane in yeah, 2012? Yeah, but, but they've, they've already sunk California in 2012. <laughs> so why are they doing San Andreas? You know, it's, it's exactly yeah. the same. Well, do you remember that 2012 wasn't it something to do with the everything heating up from the inside so it was it was global and in many ways that's what made 2012 had absolutely no impact it's like well we're all fucked <laughs> great news um uh so they've obviously scaled it back down a little bit for uh for san andreas scaled um, it, dude. <laughs> the, the, the pedant in me well yeah they're just dealing with the west coast of the united states as opposed to the planet <laughs> that is scaling down um, and the pen to me needs to point out San Andreas fault isn't pulling apart, Steve. It's um, one's going up, one's going down. Yeah, all right. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm so glad you're here, Ed, to tell us these things. I really am. Otherwise, Davey Florence's podcast would have no value whatsoever. <laughs> Do you mean, but, Ed, in Superman, when they plant the atomic, shoot that atomic bomb into the San Andreas, thought that that wouldn't happen? Uh, I don't know. I've never seen it. You haven't seen Superman? Nope. 
I can't stand Superman. It doesn't matter whether it's Christopher oh, Reeve. Oh, God, here we go. Uh, Another half hour oh. of Steve telling me. <laughs> Super, <laughs> Superman is intrinsic, intrinsically tedious because he's voiceless yes. and virtually in, invulnerable. Therefore, yes. he is about as exciting as watching a well-constructed statue. And that's that's it. And, and a well-constructed statue in a really stupid costume. Yeah. Anyway, just, anyway, the rock's in it, so... Yeah, so yes. I'm going to go and see it, obviously. Well, I'm sure you are. You know, are you going for a daytime showing where there'll be less people around you, <laughs> so you can have a little private time to yourself? Uh, I don't know. I'll see what screenings are on. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, that opens on Friday, as Phil just mentioned, and uh, also on Friday we've got Man Up, which is the new comedy with Simon Pegg, which opens on Friday as well, which it looks okay in the trailers, but um, it, the lead in it's a woman called Lake Bell, who's an American actress, but she's playing English in the film, and I've suddenly thought. Is it just me or a lot of Americans playing English parts these days and a lot of English actors are playing American parts these days and it's kind of weird. I, watched, I was watching The Affair on, um, which started on a couple, I think last week or week before on, on Sky. Um, it's a series where there's uh, well, a couple have an affair but it's basically take the concept, the, the conceit is that they're both being interviewed separately by the police and so their versions of events are different from one another. Subtly sometimes but sometimes much more noticeably different but the, the two people in it and it's set in america and they're playing americans are dominic west and um uh ruth thingy with wilson both of whom are english so it's, it's kind of strange that you know an american show would would hire two english actors to play the lead american roles you can't kind of think well surely there are some american actors they could have found for that part yeah i mean there's, that, there's, that, there's that guy that plays house md he's american yeah. <laughs> Do you know, most Americans didn't know that Hugh Laurie was English. Yes, I know. He, he turned up on some interview. Was it Letterman or something like that? And, uh... Uh, Hugh Laurie, by the way, is in Tomorrowland, which also opened at the weekend. Uh, a film based upon the Disneyland um, feature. Yeah, and, <laughs> and rather than have Steve nabber on for 20 minutes, go and read the review. It's on the homepage. Yeah, um, Cassandra reviewed that, and you can go and read the review at the homepage. Right, okay, Blu-rays. Anything worth buying? Well, uh, I mentioned it earlier on uh, when I was talking about the subs, but American Sniper... I, I quite enjoyed it. I, I I hadn't seen it before, and I've been put off. So I thought it was going to be flag waving American, you know, American jingoism and full of American this, American that. But actually, uh, I, I thought it was quite a gripping film about the true story of um, a sniper in in, uh, in the uh, Navy SEAL sniper uh, who clocked up something like 160 kills, including one of which was a, a shot that was over a mile, which was nearly impossible. And uh, well, like I said, uh, I think directed by Clint Eastwood and starring Bradley Cooper, who playing um, the lead character Chris uh, Chris Kyle. Got a bit of a sad ending, but I wish I went well. I mean, it was, it's true. I, so it's I, I think, yeah, I think everybody knows that he <laughs> <Yeah>. was shot. <laughs> so he was shot, yes, at a gun range by a marine. He was trying to, you know, with post-traumatic stress disorder, that he was trying to help. And um, so the, the irony of a, a sniper being killed by America's pretty lax gun laws isn't is lost on me. But um, I thought that Clint did a brilliant job of um, juggling the his tours in, in Iraq plus his domestic life, regardless of what you might think of, of the story or the film uh, itself. If you're looking for a demo disc for audio, <laughs> that, get it. <laughs> get uh, it, because you won't be disappointed, I guarantee it. That's American Sniper. That's out um, this week. Uh, no, sorry, next week. And then Whiplash comes out next week, uh, which I saw at the cinema and I thoroughly enjoyed. And uh, I recommend it highly. Also, I'm thinking of picking it up because I'm wondering, because you know, it's about jazz drumming and there's a lot of drumming in it. And since I've got these subs in right now, I'm thinking that, they might, that, that might sound really, really good. But the, it'll be a great test anyway to see how fast and responsive they are. With that soundtrack, so uh, that should be good. I'm sure. Also, Ed's, I'm sure Ed's got some jazz they can give you. <laughs> what you do? You want something? What you want something with prodigious bass, or do you uh, want something that's then. really quite fast and complicated? Both. All right. Okay. I'll I'll, I'll see what out. I can do. <laughs> uh, also out next week, Ex Machina. Um, which I also saw at the cinema, and I did enjoy, although it is flawed, I think, in, in some respects. But it's still an enjoyable film about um, a sentient comp- uh, robot, basically, and you know what it is that you know makes you human and self-aware. Uh, interesting ideas, uh, written by Alex Garland, written directed by Alex Garland. Actually, I think about it. Um, and yeah, worth checking out if you're a sci-fi fan. It's got more hardcore sci-fi, which doesn't happen much these days, and it has some interesting ideas in it, so it's worth checking out. There's also The Gambler. Have not seen that. Mark Wahlberg. I don't, I'm not really a big fan of Mark Wahlberg. The only thing I've ever seen him in that I actually liked was Ted. Boogie, so, Boogie Nights. Oh, and Boogie Nights. You're right. Yes, he's good, really he's good, good in Boogie Nights. Nights. Yeah. He is good in Boogie Nights. Yeah, I'll give him that. That's out next week, and also Shaun the Sheep. Oh, which well, I have not seen, but has had spectacular reviews, and I must be tempted to pick it up. Uh, that's the one that leaped off the page for me, Shaun the Sheep. 
Well, my wife's got whiplash on order. <laughs> well, as a music teacher, I think she's just looking for hints and tips. <laughs> what, throwing the cymbal at kids and beating them up? It's not my, not my tempo. <laughs> so, uh, like we've already mentioned, San Andreas is opening on Friday. Harken back to the old days of the disaster movies. I remember as a as a as a kid, maybe my memories warped a little bit, but there used to be loads of these disaster movies where uh, Poseidon Adventure, what was the other one, the Earthquake, and I'm trying well, to think of them. There was an entire series of airport ones, wasn't there? There, there was, was airport. yeah, Airport seventy seven. And... Well, it was it was Airport that kicked it off. Um, that was the like nineteen seventy, I think it was. It was the first yeah. disaster film of the modern style disaster movie. I suppose there probably been others before that, but that was the one that kicked off the whole cycle. And then there was a and a whole bunch of them, mostly produced by the, the king of disaster movies, the great Irwin Allen, who did The Poseidon Adventure, which you mentioned, Phil, and my all-time favourite, The Towering Inferno. Which is a cracker. Um, oh, yeah, cracker. How, how great is that? A film so big, it took two studios to make it, because it's uh, 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers got together, because I think one owned the rights to a book called The Glass Inferno, and one owned the rights to a book called The Tower, and they're both about basically the same thing, a bit building on fire. So they put them together, Towering Inferno, uh, and they got in Steve McQueen to play the coolest fire ch- chief of all time. Um, and that was the first, one of my first cinema going experiences. I saw it in a, bizarrely in a double bill with the man with the golden gun in 75. So I was about eight. I was eight years old. And I remember seeing Terry Inferno and, and absolutely loving it. But I was confused as a kid. I couldn't, I kept confusing Paul Newman with um, um, Steve McQueen in the film for some reason. I remember that being slightly confused by that, but um, but really enjoying that you know the, the idea of this massive building on fire and all the fire stunts, which are really well done in that film and must have been really dangerous back then. Um, but yeah, that's like the quintessential big disaster, big cast, kill them all off one by one. Really cool guys, you know, to sort of save the day. Uh, pretty much set the template, I think, for that for the disaster movies. So for me. let's move on to modern day disaster movies. What would be your uh... Favorite of the other? Well, um, actually, Ed's already mentioned it. I'm quite partial to 2012. I know it's ludicrous. Really? Really? Yeah. 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 If yeah. I was, yeah. if I was going to go one, I, w- I wouldn't go 2012. I would go um, the after tomorrow. You see, that for me is the is the better one of the lot. Uh, it, 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 that, that's a that's a, a guilty pleasure. Watch it when the weather's really bad outside. <laughs> film. Well, it could, could be worse, you know. Um, yeah, I I, it, it, it's it's where it's it's. It tries hard to be grounded in some kind of reality. Does it? <laughs> well, it tries. Well, well, it, it, tri- it, it tries. It's a, it's a thin strand. I it agree. Tr- but it they tries. Are it tries rather than saying to hell with physics and everything else. Let's just. Be. It it does try to 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 be a little bit sensible before it goes off silly. I See, have to say, I like. It's, it's one of my favourites. I'm going to sit my neck out. And I've I've ums and ahs and run up to this. I'm going to say it. Dante's Peak. It's just ridiculous but magnificent. And yeah. um, it's got, you know, an old an old lady being melted by acid. What more could you possibly <laughs> want? Um, I, I, I think for me, other than The Day After Tomorrow, the, the only one, other one that really kind of sticks in my mind is Twister. Is it really a disaster movie? Yeah, I suppose it is. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's disastrous if you live in the town and got hit by it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, I, again, something which, you know, it, at the time, what a really good cast it had. You know, it was just a it was just a um, um, a B movie at the time, wasn't it? But I mean, you got Philip Seymour Hoffman in there, you yep. got uh, Bill um, Bill Paxton Paxton. Uh, what, what you like Bill. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and again, you know, great effects from ILM, which I think still hold up. I thought the, the effects in Twister were better than the effects in in uh, what was the other one with the really Into bad the acting? Into the Storm. My God, what a terrible film that was. Just See, again, I, I quite enjoyed Into the Storm. <laughs> So what would you? So that does that raise the question, Phil. Since you start, mentioned it, was, was what defines a disaster film? Presumably, you want a, t- a group of characters, ideally it's, some of whom are quite well known. Uh, well, you see, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stick my neck out here and say anything with a rock in it. Anything with a rock in it is a disaster. With a rock or the rock? The rock. <laughs> well, I think I think. Uh, Furious Seven may have to take take umbrage there because it, 1.5 billion worldwide. Yeah, that, that just that just proves that there's a lot of stupid people out there. <laughs> right, are we finished with the disaster movies? <laughs> disastrous coverage of disaster movies is now disastrously over. And on that bombshell. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yes, uh, I think I think we have that's it from the AV Forums podcast for this week. And uh, my thanks to Ed Selly. I'm not a nympho. I'm not Mary Poppins either, but I'm not a nympho. And Steve Willers. Yeah, that was what I was going to do. Well, tough. <laughs> I got there first. What do you have to do to get a drink around here? And uh, don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, bookmark AV Forums for the latest reviews, news, and video. And you can also leave us our ratings on iTunes. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Phil Hinton, and we'll see you again not next Wednesday we're not here next week we are having a summer holiday so we are back again on (laughs) yes we uh, so we are back again on the 10th of June for the next AV Forums podcast we'll see you then (laughs) 